Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Taming the Shrew podcast. We're back in the saddle again after a long hiatus, and here in a minute, we're going to be joined by Dr. Lauren Titone, Dr. Rob Thompson, and Dr. Walker Plash, who are going to cover our most recent journal club. Now, before we get started, two of the trials we're going to cover are non-inferiority studies, something we haven't talked much about previously. So before we get into the discussion, let's talk about what a non-inferiority study is. The first thing to remember that is a non-inferiority study is not trying to show that two treatments have the exact same effect. A non-inferiority study is a little bit of a reverse of the typical superiority trial design we're used to. Instead of pre-specifying that drug A has to be better than drug B by 15%, you start off by specifying an acceptable level of clinical non-inferiority. You're basically saying that drug A can be up to 10% worse than drug B. Now, the study shows that uh, drug A is 5% worse than drug B, then you say it's non-inferior. If the study results show that drug A is 15% worse than drug B, then you say that drug A did not meet the pre-specified non-inferiority standard. Why do a non-inferiority study? Well, if you have a disease process where the established treatment is already effective, maybe maximally effective or nearly maximally effective, it's going to be very challenging to conduct a study where the new treatment compared to the old shows to superiority. It'll take a ton of patients, a ton of money to detect a small benefit. However, if the new treatment you're looking at has some theoretical benefits outside of the clinical effectiveness, such as uh, it's easier to take, there's less invasive monitoring, better patient compliance, then a non-inferiority study makes some sense. Show the world that the new treatment is not significantly worse than the old treatment and comes with these other benefits to patients. Great. Bring on the new treatment. So let's get started first with Dr. Tatone looking at the REDUCE trial, short-term versus conventional glucocorticoid therapy and acute exacerbations of chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, published in JAMA. So today we are uh, here to discuss the REDUCE or the reduction in the use of corticosteroids in exacerbated COPD trial. This was a trial that was published in JAMA back in 2013. And I think when we were going through papers we wanted to talk about in Journal Club, this wasn't so much a game changer in our practice pattern, but it was more of a a way to get some good evidence-based foundation into to why we do some of the things we do in the ED probably almost every shift. So getting into the paper, the overall clinical question in this trial was, in patients with acute COPD exacerbations, is a five-day course of steroids non-inferior to a 14-day course of steroids at preventing repeat exacerbations? There have been a couple studies that were cited in the background of the paper that show the benefits of glucocorticoids versus placebo in acute exacerbations. However, at the time when this paper was published, there was very little data discussing the length of treatment. And we all know we have multiple studies that tell us decreasing the long-term use of systemic steroids decreases mortality. So it only seems reasonable that we would want to try to nail down the shortest dose of steroids possible while still getting a benefit. So this was a multi-center, double-blind, randomized control trial that was set up to show non-inferiority between a short-term versus long-term course of steroids. The methods from this paper were pretty solid. Uh, It was performed at five teaching hospitals in Switzerland. They enrolled 314 patients with an intention to treat analysis, but also did a protocol analysis. They lost only 18 patients to follow up. And uh, in order to be included in the study, you had to be greater than 40 years of age, have a greater than 20-pack year smoking history, and have an exacerbation which was characterized by a change in dyspnea or a change in sputum quantity 
or appearance. Um, as far as exclusion, these patients went so far as to perform PFTs immediately prior to randomization to ensure that these people actually had COPD, and you had to have an FEV1 to FVC ratio of less than 70%. You were also excluded if you had pneumonia, um, but you were not excluded if you had received, received steroids or antibiotics prior to enrollment. So what do you guys think about these inclusion and exclusion criteria? I, I like the inclusion criteria that includes confirmed COPD. So this is not contaminated with other patients. We know these patients have COPD. I feel like it's a very applicable uh, patient population for the patients that we're treating at the University of Cincinnati. Similar patients. Yeah, I thought so too. Um, So the two treatment groups that they went uh, along with were an experimental five days of treatment followed by nine days of placebo or 14 days of treatment with no taper, which was considered the conventional treatment group. Treatment consisted of 40 milligrams of IV methylprednisolone in the emergency department, followed by 40 milligrams daily, whether that was at home or as an inpatient. Initially, I was a little bit concerned that they had given an IV dose, as this is not my standard of practice in people with no significant respiratory distress. However, when you read through their reasoning, it was more so that they didn't exclude those sick people who couldn't get PO steroids right off the bat. So in retrospect, I think this was a really nice way to set up the study. The other interventions that both groups got in order to help decrease some of the confounding and which plays a major role in the study was that every patient in the study, regardless of whether they got admitted or discharged, got seven days of broad-spectrum antibiotics, uh, as well as teotropium and an inhaled corticosteroid slash, you know, long-acting beta agonist combination. The teotropium, as well as that combination med, were maintained throughout the six-month follow-up period. So are these things you guys are typically discharging your COPD exacerbations home on? No, that's not something that I'm usually starting. Um, I'll refill those medications if they're on them, but not something I'm ever really starting out of the emergency department. Yeah, so I thought that that played a a big factor in the study is that these people got some really solid treatment for their COPD as well as, you know, their their short-acting inhalers and the steroids, uh, which were, you know, five versus 14 days. So as far as outcomes go, uh, they had one primary outcome, which I thought was uh, patient-centered and what we we really care about. Uh, They were looking at time to next COPD exacerbation within a six-month period. And that six-month period was based on previous trials, which show that basically by six months, the efficacy of steroids has really dwindled. Uh, Here, the exacerbation was defined a little bit differently. It was clinical deterioration beyond usual variation, and it had to require contact with a physician, but it did not require any kind of hospitalization or that they had to get treatment. It just meant they had to feel a little bit differently than their normal COPD day-to-day life. Uh, They then looked at several secondary outcomes like changes in PFTs, quality of life scores, mortality, need for intubation or uh, non-invasive, things we kind of care about in our COPD patients. And then lastly, they investigated some of the adverse effects that go along with steroids like hyperglycemia, infection, and hypertension. So getting to their analysis, uh, they ran a non-inferiority analysis on the primary outcome and then a superiority analysis on some of their secondary endpoints. And in order to determine what was going to be you know, their non-inferiority threshold, they pulled 11 board-certified specialists in internal medicine, endocrinology, and pulmonology and asked them, in order to have a shorter course of steroids, what was the maximum increase in treatment failure they were, they were willing to accept? And they came up with about 15% absolute difference. So... Based on previous trials, the authors estimated that 50% of people were going to have an exacerbation within six months no matter what. So they added this 50% to 15% and got 65%. So 
in order to be non-inferior, the shorter treatment group had to not have a bounce back rate greater than 65%. And through their analysis, they translated this to a hazard ratio of less than 1.515 in order to show non-inferiority. So what do you guys think about this? Are you expecting about 50% of your COPD patients to bounce back? And are you comfortable with this 15% non-inferiority margin? I guess I would probably expect about 50% of my COPD patients to come back within six months. It seems like quite a long time. But I find the 11-person panel giving a 15% number kind of strange and arbitrary. Yeah, I, I thought the 15% was a little bit wide. Um, and it, you know, going then through confidence intervals, it's going to widen it out even a little bit more. So potentially that could have been a little bit tighter. So study enrollment was pretty uneventful with the uh, only statistically significant thing between the two groups being that there was a little bit more women in the 14-day course. Otherwise, they re- did, really did a nice job with randomization, ensuring that both groups had equal amounts of people in the gold criteria one through fours, as well as similar vital signs. Uh, An interesting thing looking at this paper from an ED standpoint is that 8.4% in the study group and 7.7% in the traditional group were discharged from the emergency department. So this was a pretty sick patient population, and a lot of these patients got admitted. So now kind of getting down to the nitty gritty of the results, they found that 36.8% in the conventional treatment and 35.9% in the five-day treatment had an exacerbation within six months. This was a lot lower than their expected 50% bounce back rate. And the hazard ratio in the intention to treat analysis was 0.95 with a tight confidence interval of 0.7 to 1.29 with a non-inferiority p-value of 0.006. And this relationship also held out in their per-protocol analysis with a hazard ratio of 0.93. And since these hazard ratios were less than their kind of set point of 1.515, the study did conclude that there was non-inferiority between these two groups. Uh, They did do some subgroup analyses on whether or not you had received steroids prior to enrollment. And in all these patients, the hazard ratios were below one, showing no harm in the five-day group. With regards to their uh, secondary outcomes, they powered these for superiority instead of non-inferiority, and the only statistically significant difference they found was that the five-day course had a median hospital stay of eight days versus nine days in the the 14-day course with a p-value of 0.04. The notable outcomes that were not statistically significant, even though the study was not powered uh, for some of these outcomes, were all-cores mortality, need for mechanical ventilation, as well as need for additional steroids. Uh, The groups were pretty much equal in these regards, and there was also no difference in the quality of life scores. It was also interesting to note that the glucocorticoid adverse event rate wasn't different with a p-value greater than 0.99. So essentially, the five-day course group didn't have, you know, less hyperglycemia or less hypertension within that that six-month period. Some of the limitations in this paper was that it was a significantly sicker patient population than we than we are potentially used to seeing in the ED. Eighty-three uh, percent of the patients were gold criteria of three or four, and only about seven to eight percent of their patients got discharged. Which, amongst the group that we spoke about at Journal Club, is probably a little bit lower than uh, what we see in our shop. We're probably sending more of these people home. The authors addressed this with what I thought was a pretty reasonable point that if the five-day course works for a sicker patient population, then by just kind of common and sense analysis, it would work for a less sick population, maybe comprised of the gold criteria one and two type patients. Um, the thing that I think for me made the study really difficult to generalize to our population, which we kind of discussed, was that all these patients got broad spectrum antibiotics as well as six months of inhaled kind of long-acting medicines. This is not something that I think I particularly do for my patients and something I more rely on my PCPs for. Um, 
the fact that these patients got significant amount of medication in addition to the steroids probably led to the fact that they only had a 35 to 36 percent re-exacerbation rate uh, versus the 50 percent they were initially expecting. But I think they were trying to really pull out all the other confounding factors and really have the only difference between these groups be 5 versus 14, which is makes this study pretty solid. Again, the study only looked at non-asthmatic smokers with COPD, which does exclude some people we see in the ED for COPD for other reasons, as well as asthmatics, who we also tend to prescribe steroid bursts for. And then, oddly enough, uh, they didn't see any change in the adverse reactions of prednisone uh, between the two groups, so no decrease in hyperglycemia or hypertension. However, there is some talk that maybe six months isn't really long enough to see the the real outcome uh, of an increased amount of steroid. And um, it, the study really wasn't powered to look at adverse reactions, so we can't say for sure that there wasn't a difference. But I think we can all agree that less steroid is common sense better for our patients, so I wasn't too concerned that there wasn't a discernible outcome here. So, guys, why do you think that uh, in this paper they saw a significantly sicker patient population with only a 8 or 9% discharge rate? I think you may have seen this because they actually did the force vital capacities and looked at did this patient actually have COPD? And in doing so, may have selected for the more sick population and where we may be treating and sending home people that have a reactive airway disease or smoke but don't have that formal diagnosis of COPD yet. And so that may be why they have a sicker patient population. Yeah, I think I agree. You know, a lot of times the word COPD gets thrown on a patient's chart without them having any formal PFTs. And since these authors went and actually did formal PFTs prior to randomization, they may have been selecting for only the people who truly had COPD and not like Rob said, you know, a reactive airway disease to a a viral URI or something like that. So I think that may have skewed this paper somewhat towards the sicker patients. So what do you guys think? Is this paper going to change your practice at all? I don't think it's going to change my practice a lot, mostly because I was already doing the five-day course of steroids. Um, The only thing that it might push me towards is that I've had a habit of if someone has been on steroids before, that I would do a longer course of steroids with a taper. I think I'll be a little more likely to just do a five-day course of steroids for those patients after looking at some of the subgroup analyses. I would agree. I mean, I'm already prescribing five days of steroids uh, for my COPD exacerbation patients, but uh, like Walker stated with the patients that were already on steroids, you know, we may not need to do the taper, but it's at the same point. Those patients that are, if they're on long-term systemic corticosteroids probably do require a taper just for their overall glucocorticoid load long-term because this study only looked at six months. Yeah, so I I generally agree. You know, in our shop, I think most of us are doing these five-day bursts. Uh, The only thing I think that it will change in my mind is occasionally if I have someone who I'm on the border of sending home or, like uh, Walker said, has been on steroids for maybe the last two or three days and doesn't need a taper, I'll sometimes really stretch it out uh, because I think they're a little bit sicker. And this trial really proves that even in a sick patient population, five days is not inferior to 14. So I think I'm going to you know stick with my five days and be a little bit more rigid when it comes to that now. Excellent. So there you have it. A decent study that seems to confirm some of, at least our own, established practice pattern. Five-day bursts of steroids are non-inferior to a 14-day long treatment course. Let's keep with the steroid theme, but shift to the treatment of asthma. Dr. Thompson will guide us through a paper from Annals in Emergency Medicine published in 2016. Another non-inferiority trial, this time looking at a single dose of dexamethasone versus a five-day course of prednisone for acute asthma exacerbations in adults. Next, I'd like to talk about a Uh, study in asthma. This is a randomized controlled uh, non-inferiority trial of a single dose of oral dexamethasone versus five days oral prednisone in acute adult asthma exacerbations. 
This study was a prospective single-site randomized triple-blinded study uh, looking for the non-inferiority of a single dose of dexamethasone versus prednisone. In this study, the hospital where it took place has 24-7 ED respiratory therapists. And so the respiratory therapist was used to screen patients for enrollment in the study. And so at the first nebulizer treatment, the respiratory therapist would screen and then enroll patients if they were in between the ages of 18 and 55, had a history of asthma, and were coming in for an asthma exacerbation. Additionally, these patients need, needed to have more than one albuterol treatment during their ED course and had to have a valid telephone number. They excluded everyone under 18 and they also excluded everyone older than 55 looking to exclude patients that also had COPD or carried a COPD diagnosis instead of asthma. They also excluded patients with a non-valid telephone number who were pregnant, had a previous allergic reaction to steroids, who had use of steroids within the last two weeks, had a history of chronic respiratory disease or pulmonary fibrosis, history of HIV or AIDS, history of CHF or diabetes, if they had active varicella or active tuberculosis, and if they, at any point during their emergency department visit, required ventilation or airway intervention such as BiPAP or intubation. They also then excluded patients after randomization if they were admitted to the hospital from that emergency department stay. Do you guys have any thoughts on them excluding patients without a working telephone number? Uh, I think, you know, this trial is trying to prove that, you know, one day versus a a course of steroids that people have to pick up uh, is beneficial. And the people you're concerned about maybe not going and picking up their medication may be the people who don't have a working phone number. So you may be excluding some of the patients that you are most concerned about for the study. So after the patients were enrolled... Uh, the respiratory therapist notified the provider, and the provider then placed an order for the study drug. And so the patient then received a single dose of 12 milligrams of dexamethasone or a single dose of 60 milligrams of prednisone. These tablets were identical in appearance, and then the patients would either go home with four days of placebo if they received dexamethasone and four days of 60 milligrams of prednisone if they were randomized to that group. They then were contacted two weeks after their ED visit via phone for a follow-up survey. They enrolled a total of 465 patients over five years, but then 10 patients from the dexamethasone group and six patients from the prednisone group were admitted, so they were removed post-randomization. And so they analyzed 376 patients. In the groups, the prednisone group, there were... 238 patients and 29 were lost to follow-up. And in the dexamethasone group, there were 277 patients, 44 were lost to follow-up. The primary outcome they were looking for was, did the patients have an unscheduled return to a healthcare provider for additional treatment for persistent asthma symptoms or worsening asthma symptoms within 14 days? And their secondary outcomes they were looking at were adverse effects from the glucocorticoids and they also looked at their current asthma symptoms at that two-week follow-up. What they found as far as the two-week or return visit within 14 days is that there was a 2.3% difference uh, between the two groups. There was 12.1% return visit in the dexamethasone group and a 9.8% return visit in the prednisone group. This had a 95% confidence interval of negative 4.1 to 8.6, but they had predetermined a relapse rate of 8% prior to determine non-inferiority at the beginning of the study. And because this confidence interval was greater than the 8% predetermined non-inferiority limit, they found that the single dose of dexamethasone was not non-inferior to the five-day course of prednisone.
As far as the secondary outcomes, there was no difference in residual symptoms and ADLs between the two groups. And the only differences they found in the adverse reactions of the glucocorticoids was uh, the prednisone group seemed to have more abdominal pain and more sleep disturbances. So I'd like to discuss the study a little bit further. The study's goal was to try to look for non-inferiority of one dose of dexamethasone to five days of prednisone, which is assumed to be the standard of care. They did find that the one dose of dexamethasone was not non-inferior to the five days of prednisone based on their predetermined uh, non-inferiority limit before the study started, which seemed to be a little arbitrary. However, the difference does seem to be small, which is a 2.3% difference. And the study had some limitations, uh, first being that the patients were all followed up via telephone. And this prevented patients from having a re-examination from a provider to see if maybe their symptoms were actually still pre- present, but they were not as affected by them. It also required the patients to recount um, what had happened over the last 14 days, allowing for some recall bias. This could have been helped by having chart review at the same time of the two-week follow-up phone call just to see if the patients had returned, even though they said they had not. Additionally, the study was limited to loss of follow-up. Almost 20% of patients were lost to follow-up. More patients were lost in the dexamethasone group, which could have impacted the results seen had those patients followed up. I think another big point here is the care of the patient during their emergency department visit was not standardized. It was led up to the provider taking care of the patient to do what they wanted. So the patients received as many breathing treatments as necessary, and there was no standardization of what medications they could also be sent home with. So they found that more patients in the prednisone group were sent home with uh, inhaled corticosteroids. Do you guys think that this could have affected the results that we saw uh, in this study? Um, I do think it could have affected the things we saw. Um, You know, the patients getting a standardized treatment could have uh, eliminated some of the the bias that you could see based on how quickly patients are responding to the steroids that they're getting while they're in the emergency department. Yeah, you know, I think compared to the first, the reduced trial, the the study we spoke about first, where they gave everyone the exact same medicines, which makes it difficult to generalized to our patient population. Here, you have the opposite problem where these people really got any kind of treatment and you don't know whether the difference between these groups was the treatment they received in the ED as far as their other inhalers or their inhaled glucocorticoids or whether it was the difference between, you know, the dexamethasone and the the steroids. I completely agree. I would have liked to see some standardization, but I did like how they allowed the provider to kind of practice as they would. Uh, Additionally, the study was just done at a single academic urban hospital, which could limit the applicability of this data to other populations, but I actually think it may fit well with us being a urban academic uh, large hospital. So I thought that their study population may have reflected what we may see in our emergency department. So the reason this study came about was there was a study looking at two days of oral dexamethasone uh, versus five days of prednisone that found that two days of oral dexamethasone was non-inferior. And there's also pediatric literature showing that two days of dexamethasone um, was equivalent to five days of prednisone in the pediatric patients. And so what they were thinking was, because there's reported about 20% of patients not filling their prescriptions after leaving the emergency department, if the two days of dexamethasone 
was either non-inferior or equivalent, uh, as in the pediatric literature, could one day be non-inferior as well. That way you have the ease of enhanced compliance and the convenience of a single dose, then the patient does not have to worry about any other uh, doses at home. However, it's important to point out that this study did not show that one dose of dexamethasone was non-inferior to five days of prednisone. However, I think that in certain patient populations, ones that you're afraid of maybe not following up or not being compliant or may not have the means to fill, you know, inhaler, multiple medications and possibly an antibiotic, this probably would work better where they get the one dose, you know that they are getting the treatment they need um, and may have a little bit more of a relapse rate, but they also could do just as well. Did you guys think based on these results, would this change your practice at all? Uh, I think it's definitely going to make me think about it the next time I have a patient where I'm concerned about compliance, although they didn't meet their 8% margin here in this non-inferiority trial. They did see somewhat of a signal uh, that it may not be, you know, really a big difference between the two. So next time I have a patient where I really don't think that they're going to go home and and go to a pharmacy or they don't have the means to do so, I think just common sense, one dose of a medicine that maybe works as well is better than them getting nothing at home. So definitely will will come into my mind more as an option uh, when I'm kind of looking at the patient as a whole. I kind of feel the same way. Um, we know that there are patients that when we discharge them, that it's highly unlikely that they're going to go fill their prescriptions that they need. And I think this gives me some belief that at least uh, a single dose of dexamethasone has got to be better than a single dose of prednisone for the patient that's not going and filling those prescriptions. Um, so I think for the patient that I'm very concerned will not follow up, I'm going to think about and probably at this point move towards giving dexamethasone for those patients. So to recap, a single dose of oral dexamethasone did not meet a non-inferiority margin when compared in a blinded randomized fashion to a five-day course of prednisone. My own personal thoughts on this one, it's really seductive to say that for those patients who are at risk for poor follow-up, that a sure thing, that being the oral dexamethasone, is better than a risky bet, and that being that the patient will fill and take their medications. Uh, if you're going to pursue that strategy, do everything you can to find out what barriers are going to prevent your patient from filling or taking their medications. Is it a financial issue? If so, can you print out some coupons for the patient or work to get them filled through the hospital pharmacy? Is it a matter of keeping the medication safe, a matter of knowing when to take it, how to take it? Whatever actions you can take to help that patient out in the emergency department, you know, take the time to do them. Try to find those barriers and try to overcome them as best as possible. Now let's move on to our final study, antibiotic therapy and treatment failure in patients hospitalized for acute exacerbations of chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. To present this study, we'll have Dr. Plash. All right, and the last paper we're going to talk about is antibiotic therapy and treatment failure in patients hospitalized for acute exacerbations of chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. It's a paper from JAMA of May of 2010. Uh, we kind of wanted to talk about this paper, mostly because there's been some practice pattern variations um, amongst our um, providers here uh, about whether you give antibiotics to COPD patients, whether you give antibiotics to all COPD patients, or just the ones who have an increased sputum production or uh, who look clinically unwell. So uh, basically what this study did, it was a retrospective multi-center cohort study looking at patients admitted for an acute exacerbation of COPD. Um, what they did is they compared um, administration of antibiotics in the first two days versus later uh, administration of antibiotics or no antibiotic administration. So they actually lumped the last two, the late antibiotics and no antibiotic administration together. So what they did um, is they used an administrative database um, that basically catalogs charges for a patient um, as well as ICD-9 codes for their admission. 
um, and they looked at 313 hospitals over the U.S. Um, participating in this um, healthcare utilization database. And what they did is they went through and they found um, the ICD-9 codes for uh, these patients admitted to the hospital, looking at COPD exacerbation, um, also looking at acute respiratory failure with a high dose of steroids that would kind of imply that the patient probably had a COPD exacerbation, also looking at emphysema um, or respiratory failure with a diagnosis of COPD in the past. Other exclusion cri- or inclusion criteria that they had is they did do an age greater than 40 years old just to try to rule out any asthma exacerbations that were possibly diagnosed as COPD and try to narrow down that patient population a little bit better. The exclusion criteria that they had were uh, patients admitted directly to the ICU. Um, They did that because one of the outcomes they were interested in was in patients that clinically deteriorated while they were in the hospital. And so one of the outcomes they looked at was actually patients that required intubation. So they were trying to really narrow down that patient population to a group of patients that's a little more borderline, so need to be admitted but not straight to the ICU. They also uh, took any patients out that had other indications for antibiotics. Uh, So if they were getting antibiotics for cellulitis or getting antibiotics for pneumonia, they wanted to eliminate those patients just to try to eliminate um, any bias that they could be getting better from the antibiotics for that. Other patients they uh, excluded were patients with a pulmonary embolus or a pneumothorax, any patients discharged from the hospital within the past 30 days, any patients that had a length of stay less than two days, Um, They also excluded any patients whose attending was not an internist, family practitioner, hospitalist, pulmonologist, or intensivist, Um, just trying to get a little bit of standardization in how these patients were managed. So what do you all think of this kind of approach to this retrospective analysis and the the patients that they pulled out and looked at? Do you feel like it's a good patient population, poor patient population? I think that, you know, it's as good as you can get from a retrospective study where you're really just pulling, you know, ICD-9 or 10 codes. Um, so there's really a limitation there as, as far as what was documented. Do these people really have what what was documented that they have? Uh, so I think they, they tried to do as good of a job that they could, but there's definitely a big limitation there for me. Yeah, that's kind of the same feeling I got is that it's limited by being a retrospective analysis using an administrative database, but um, their criteria seem good and they're kind of the patients that they were looking to separate out, and they feel like they did a, a good job of that given the limitations that they had by using the database that they were using. And so the, the analysis they did, they basically compared the groups that received antibiotics within two days of administration, and those patients had to receive at least two days of antibiotics, basically trying to eliminate any patient that maybe got a single dose of antibiotics in the emergency department, but then that was not continued in the hospital. And then they compared that to patients who did not receive antibiotics or received antibiotics later. Um, And what they did is they actually did several iterations of comparisons. So they just did uh, an unadjusted comparison using just the patients that they had. And then they went back afterwards and did a propensity matching score where they basically tried to predict who would get antibiotics and who would not get antibiotics and match those patients together to try to eliminate some of the bias um, that you would see just from um, this not being a randomized study and actually being a retrospective approach. Um, The other thing they did is they also did a covariate adjusted model, Um, so not necessarily predicting the propensity that the patients were going to get antibiotics, but just trying to control for some of those covariate analyses. Uh, And then they actually lumped the last two together, so they did a propensity and covariate adjusted analysis um, when they did this. 
um, in general, um, that seemed like a pretty good approach. Um, when we talked about it in Journal Club, they did several different analyses, and we'll talk about this in the results a little bit later, but all of the analyses seem to, identi- uh, seem to agree with each other, which kind of adds to the robustness of this paper. Um, the one thing that was a little bit limited is that even after all the uh, propensity matching and covariate adjustments, if you actually look back through their results, uh, the scores actually there are still some differences in those patient populations, so not completely randomized. So looking at the, the outcomes that they looked at, uh, the first, the primary outcome was treatment failure, which they defined as any initiation of mechanical uh, ventilation after day two, in-hospital mortality or readmission for an acute COPD exacerbation within 30 days of discharge. The secondary outcomes that they were looking at, these are sort of more the um, adverse effects you would think of uh, with a patient getting antibiotics. Um, So they looked at uh, antibiotic-associated diarrhea, allergic reactions, uh, readmission for diarrhea, or readmission for uh, C. diff within 30 days of their discharge. They also looked at hospital cost and length of stay as well. So based uh, what they found is they had 84,621 subjects that were included in the uh, study sample, so obviously a huge number of patients. They looked back and basically 79% of patients received at least two days of antibiotics beginning day one or day two of hospitalization. So looking at the primary outcome um, for treatment failure of early antibiotics versus uh, late or no antibiotics, they found, um, and this is going through the four different um, analyses that we talked about earlier, the unadjusted uh, relative risk was 0.82 with a 95% confidence interval of 0.78 to 0.87. Um, covariate adjusted was 0.87, propensity and covariate adjusted was 0.87, and then propensity matched was actually 0.88. So all of those values very close to each other and all kind of agreeing with each other that in general antibiotics seem to have a better outcome on this um, kind of defined primary outcome being initiation of mechanical intubation or uh, readmission or in-hospital mortality. Looking at um, the secondary outcomes, they actually found, um, interestingly, that uh, patients who got late or no antibiotics had a higher incidence of allergic reaction. Um, That's interesting because it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, and there's no good real explanation that I could find for why that was the case. But as you would kind of expect, um, patients who got early antibiotics had a higher um, rate of uh, readmission with diarrhea um, and a higher rate of C. diff diarrhea. Um, So that being 0.23% 0.23% versus 0.13% for the readmission with diarrhea, and then 0.19% versus uh, 0.09% for C. diff diarrhea. The other thing that was a little bit interesting is that the um, odds ratio for stay length and cost was a little bit higher in the um, patients who got early antibiotics. It was 1.01 um, to 1.03, kind of in that range, depending on analysis you looked at, but all of those patients had a slightly increased stay length and slightly um, increased costs. So kind of going through and talking about this paper, um, it was a very interesting clinical question. Um, there's still some practice variation in who's giving antibiotics, who's not, um, especially with some of the papers that have come out recently trying to pin down um, patients that don't get uh, benefit from antibiotics. Um, we feel like this patient's kind of as we talked about earlier, the authors did a good job of controlling for most of the confounding factors, um, especially given the limitations of this being a retrospective analysis. It did show a positive trend towards antibiotics um, with improvement in actually in-hospital mortality, improvements in requirement for mechanical innovation, and then improvements for uh, repeat admission for COPD exacerbation when they went through and actually broke those three factors out. All three showed a slight improvement. 
So, Ford felt like this was generalizable to most of the people that we were seeing. Um, it was a wide range of hospitals. There was a slight um, skew towards suburban and rural hospitals as opposed to the urban environment that we work in, but felt like it was a pretty good uh, generalizable approach to all of the patients within the U.S. Maybe not quite as generalizable to Europe or other practice areas where antibiotics are a little bit less likely to be given uh, to patients with COPD, but in general, generalizable. It also showed a really low risk of adverse events, uh, which was reassuring. Uh, obviously, the increased risk of diarrhea and C. diff is nothing to be unconcerned about, um, but the rates were relatively low for both of those. The one thing that they didn't really um, address is you can't really, basically you can't address the possibility of antibiotic resistance based on this paper with um, the fact that this is an administrative database looking retrospectively. You'd have no idea of how many increased uh, risk of antibiotic-resistant bacteria you're creating. The other limitation that we kind of found with this paper is that there's no, and this is kind of from one of the letters to the editor after the paper was published, is that it's unclear exactly um, what number of patients actually got chest x-rays, and is there a possibility that some of these patients were actually undiagnosed pneumonia, or there was a question of, you know, maybe they had clinical pneumonia um, and received antibiotics for that reason, and that might be why you saw some of the benefit that you would not have seen if it had just been a straightforward COPD exacerbation. But So that's kind of the, the summary of the paper. What are your all uh, take-home points? Do you think you're going to change how you're going to manage these patients going forward? I essentially already give azithromycin to all my COPD exacerbations, and I would have liked to have seen what antibiotics these patients had received. It doesn't break it down to, was this essentially all azithromycin, or were the, like you had mentioned with the chest x-ray, was there an infiltrate or something that may have been seen but not called, and so they just treated with a more broader spectrum antibiotic. And so I would have liked to kind of see the breakdown there to see if this was just this, more of a standard of treatment with azithromycin, or was this some bigger gun antibiotics treating for maybe something else. I agree. I tend to give azithromycin or an equivalent in the allergic patient uh, to every one of my COPD exacerbations that get admitted, um, whereas the ones I send home, I'm really only doing it based on gold criteria, increase or change in sputum production. I think where this is going to be interesting is the patients that we decide to put into our ED observation unit. Does that count as an admitted patient? Maybe I'm going to be more likely if I'm, I'm considering keeping this person for a 23-hour OBS admission to give azithromycin, even if they're not meeting gold criteria based on this patient, based, based on this paper, since there was a, a you know, a discernible difference there. Um, but otherwise, I, I think I'm going to kind of keep doing what I'm doing where pe people that I feel like are sick enough to get admitted without pneumonia but with just a straight-up COPD exacerbation are going to get some azithromycin. And, Rob, going back to your point, it's not something I talked about in the um, first discussion, but the antibiotics that they included, they lumped everything together, uh, which kind of going back to your point, it would have been nice to see this broken apart. But they did use first, second, third generation cephalosporins, quinolones, macrolides, tetracyclines, bactrim, and amoxicillin, either with or without uh, clavulonic acid. So a huge variation in the antibiotics that these patients were given, some of which would treat pneumonia, uh, some of which would not. Um, so obviously some breakdown of that would have been beneficial. Um, but that was sort of the same takeaway that I had. Um, I patients that I'm admitting for a COPD exacerbation, I'm already giving antibiotics to. I'm not going to change that practice based on this. I don't think I'm going to broaden out the antibiotics that I'm giving these patients that I'm admitting um, unless I'm treating for a pneumonia or something like that. One thing with this being a retrospective analysis um, is just being aware that in the future there could be some studies that come out that change my practice pattern in that, knowing that this isn't a lockdown slam dunk, that yes, 100% of these patients that are getting admitted should get antibiotics. And if something comes out in the future that shows that you know this portion of patients getting admitted to the hospital should not get antibiotics, then I would probably change my practice pattern then. 
but up until then, any patient that I'm admitting to the hospital, and I think any patient that I'm admitting to the observation unit that I'm that worried about, I'm going to be giving at least um, azithromycin or some comparative antibiotic uh, to those patients. So there we have it. Antibiotics and COPD decrease inpatient mortality, decrease mechanical ventilation requirements, and decrease readmissions, but come at the cost of a slight increase in diarrhea and C. diff. This is certainly not the end of the story. I mean, antibiotics are not benign medications. Their overuse in the medical community is well known. This was a reasonably well-done retrospective trial where the authors used a number of statistical methodologies to try and limit bias in their reporting. But ultimately, prospective trials seeking to identify the individuals most likely to benefit are hopefully on the way. Well, thanks for joining us this time. We'll be back at it shortly with a lot of great stuff planned for the spring. And until next time, take care.